0: Welcome to our interview series on brave feminine leadership. I'm absolutely thrilled today to be joined in the conversation by Christina Ryan. Christina, thank you for joining. Oh, it's so great to be here, Melissa. <laughs> I'm very excited about our conversation. I mean, there's a, a sort of back theme to this series around No More Secrets um, Extraordinary Leaders Share Their Journey from Good to Great. Um, But let me firstly step through your bio briefly, so people get an idea of who I'm talking to, those that haven't come across you before. So Christina Ryan is the CEO and founder of the Disability Leadership Institute. She's been an active leader in the Australian disability community for over 20 years, working at an international, national and local level to change the diversity agenda. Christina pioneered the use of mainstream forums by disabled women at the United Nations and now mentors and teaches effective use of the UN for rights activists globally. Um, after 20 years working in community sector management, Christina realized that the levels of violence and marginalization experienced by disabled people were the direct outcome of inequality. And that to address this, we need a growth in disability leadership right across the public domain. So in 2016, Christina established the Disability Leadership Institute as a professional hub to build and support our disability leaders. In 2013, Christina was acknowledged as one of 100 women of the Canberra Centenary. She was a finalist in the 2014 ACT Telstra Businesswomen Awards. That was a mouthful to get out. And was awarded the Lifetime Achievement in Inclusion at the 2015 ACT Chief Minister's Inclusion Awards. A 2017 Westpac Social Change Fellow, and in 2018, the Disability Leadership Institute was a finalist in the Telstra Business Awards Emerging and Energised category. Christina, I know we've barely scratched the surface of your bio with what I chose to cover there. Mm, um,
1: but that's so- the short bio. You've got to have a short one so people can actually, you know... Um- it's one of those funny things you've got to give time at the conferences and the speaking events for something to be said other than your bio yeah
0: (laughs) well we've got plenty of time which is the good news So, um, so for people who have not had the pleasure of coming across you before tell us about you um you know let's jump into your story and we'll go from there
1: oh goodness um well, I, I guess I view my story in threads if I stop and think about it. Um, that just put me into that space. you know there's the disability story, and you now I'm a proudly disabled woman, a feminist. Um, I've been very much enmeshed in the disability community in Australia for the last 25 years, and globally, uh, we have a fantastic international network of women with disability. Um, I don't know what the acronym is for it. it's full of W's, it's really hard. Um, and so there's that thread. Um, that's you know where I've done a lot of my international human rights work, uh, which has provided me with enormous gratification and um, some incredible connections with wonderful people all over the planet. I also, as part of my disability thread, uh, ran a disability advocacy organisation. And through that did a lot of human rights work as well, including work around decision making and violence. Um, and through that, got involved with a lot of human rights lawyers all over the planet. I'm not a lawyer, but I know a lot of them. Um, there's a whole other thread of my existence, which is my uh, feminism thread, I guess. Uh, I grew up in the women's movement. My um, Well, it's kind of my family business, if you want to look at it that way. And or the family trade, as we think of it. Um, and so I learned my feminism on the street you know, at the barricades with my family, um, not at a university. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of terminology I don't understand, but I know what I'm doing. And, yeah. uh, and so that was, that's a thread that of course continues, that doesn't stop. Um, and then there's also me. <laughs> so, uh, and in fact, I was talking to someone the other day, and they asked me what I do with my, um, when I'm not working. And I thought, oh, it was another interview I did with somebody, and I thought, oh, oh when's that? <laughs> I thought, oh, that's a bit awkward. Um, okay, uh, you know, I'm a leadership coach now and, and, uh, you know, for me to admit that there's um, very little not working time is a bit, mm, you didn't hear me say that. Um, but I also have my partner as a musician uh, and we do folk festivals, we do music um, and we're very big foodies. Uh, so um, we we very... Uh, enjoyably get out there and eat out. And, and we've done that our whole lives together. And, um, and, you know, music, food, really good wine. I live in Canberra. I'm surrounded by an excellent wine region. Amazing. Hot tip, drink Canberra region wines. Very nice. Um, yeah, so all these different threads uh, of my existence. And, and so, you know, I'm part of the Canberra community. I've, I've lived here for most of my life and love it. So I'm also well-known in Canberra. (laughs) So there's all those different things that are me, I suppose. Mm.
0: Fantastic. I would love, because I'm sure, um, you know, you you brush over, you grew up in the women's movement and it's the family business. And so if I can just briefly reference um, your grandmother, Edna Ryan, um, and I would just love our audience to know how instrumental she has been. Um, you know, we all stand on the shoulders of people that have come before us, and and you're actively working to improve things for a whole range of people. But, you know, if my um and and let me know if I'm off base on here, but my understanding is that your grandmother, in retirement, became a member of the women's electoral lobby, yep. and then devoted her time to women in the paid workforce, and that in 1974. Um, there was a minimum wage case at the Conciliation and Arbitration Commission, and she presented, I think, data that had been not been seen before on the number of solo female breadwinners in the workforce. And that information was instrumental in the decision that Judge Terry Winter made to increase the um, minimum wage for women to be equal to that of men. Yeah,
1: there, there was actually a multiple Equal pay cases. Um, so Edna, Edna was uh, in the workforce all of her existence. Um, she was part of an extremely large family. She was one of 12. And uh, because that's how big families were back then. And mm-hmm. her mother uh, was the breadwinner because her father was very rarely around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he was a a, a merchant uh, sailor and, you know, was more away than, than home. And, you know, there's a joke that he only came home 13 times. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> it was a bit more often than that. Um, but they, uh, you know, so she grew up in a situation where she was the only one in her, uh, she had eight sisters. There were nine girls in the family. And she was the only one who actually got to go to uh, high school. Right. Mm. And even then it was, you know, leaving at 15. And her older sisters, because she was one of the youngest, her older sisters were all um, semstresses is the word. So they were all working uh, in sewing, in piecework it was called. So, you know, you get paid per garment. Yes. And her uh, next sister up, Vic, uh, Victoria, Victoria, was actually a qualified tailor, which was highly unusual back then. We're talking about before, uh, we would be, ta- yeah, before the First World War, and so around that time, and Arnie Vic uh, somehow managed to become a tailor, and it meant that she earned outrageously more than her sisters for doing exactly the same work. It was really appalling, and so right back then, um, when Edna was still in school, she realised that women always worked. Women have always worked. Mm. (laughs) And she always said that women have always worked. It was one of the things that she said. Um, But she also um, understood at that early age the appalling gender disparity in pay and the discrimination and became uh, very active from a very early age. Um, First through the Communist Party, she got involved in the Communist Party in the 20s. And, uh, you know, that was when my grandfather was um, around and she, uh, they did a lot of work together and separately um, in their space, but she also um, continued that right through in the labour movement. So she was a really strong unionist. Um, if you're not a member of the union in my family, there's a problem. <laughs> there's a problem. So yeah, we're all members of the unions, uh, whichever one it is that we're um, you know, supposed to be in. She would have been utterly thrilled when Sally McManus became the secretary of the ACTU, uh, the first woman secretary Um, because that's her union. Sally was from her union um, and it's my union as well of course, the services union. And so that was a thrill Um, and I remember telling Sally that Edna would have been very proud of her. So she was always part of the labour, you know, union movement, the the better conditions. And so that continued right through um, to her becoming a member of the Fairfield County Council. She was the first female deputy mayor in New South Wales. And um, and through that, she kind of started on her equal pay campaign. And so through the 60s, she was doing a lot of that work. But it wasn't until 1972, when the Women's Electoral Lobby was formed, that she joined well mm. and became active through well in the equal pay uh, mm. cases and became one of their lead people uh, working on that or lead. Women and it was very binary in those days, it was women as a binary thing. Um, So she was very active in that space. So she would be the first to say it was a team effort, you know, she wasn't the only one. But there was a 69 wage case uh, that was equal pay. And that was when a lot of women got their first equal pay thing Um, and then there was the 72 and there was almost the annual wage case and 74 was the big one that was equal pay for work of equal value. Okay. Um, Okay, and equal value means it's not necessarily exactly the same job. We were just talking about interruptions and I forgot to actually put my phone on silent, which I will do now. That's like It's exciting, isn't it? Isn't it? I'll call my mother back later. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so it was. It was actually quite a thing, and this was all. You know, they tried to use the unions to do this work, um, but the unions were very male-dominated in those days. They weren't very keen, and so it ended up being a women's movement thing. And mm-hmm. it had to be taken out into the women's movement. And this is when um, the women's movement really started identifying. Um, oh, what we might call now women's issues, but back then women's issues was a really derogatory term. So, Mm -hmm. um, but recognising that women were treated very differently in the labour force. Um, It wasn't just around equal pay. We're still fighting for maternity leave. That was part of the equal pay cases as well. Um, We're still fighting for flexible work that is um, meaningful and actually does what it needs to for us. Uh, We're still fighting for um, leadership positions. We're still fighting for Um, you know, equality in uh, the boardrooms, you know, the ASX 200. uh, So all of those places um, are still being worked on. Um, But the first, I guess, really big, chunky one, apart from the right to education and women's right to have a tertiary education, which was a very long fight, and women's reproductive rights, which is a very long fight, um, which started way back in the 1890s, you know, the pay rates was a huge thing, and the right to be treated equally in the workplace, um, you know, it was a really big factor in those early days. So she was in there right from the start. And mm-hmm. the wonderful thing about that was during all of that period, um, you know, we always used to go and stay with grandma when we turned five. You go and stay with grandma, mm-hmm. and uh, so I did that. Um, and that was right in the middle of the equal pay cases. And so I was there um, and I used to stay with her every school holidays. I, You know, we were very close um, yes. and, you know, she was actually very big in theatre. She would always go to the theatre and cinema would always go to the cinema. And She lived right in the middle of Sydney, right in the middle of Sydney. And uh, just, you know, you'd look out at, over the park. That's where she lived. Um, and so she did a lot of theatre, a lot of art, uh, art galleries. We'd go to the Archibald every year and, um, and you know, see all the latest films. Mm. And so it was a really cultured existence um, as well as on the side, you know, she's doing all this stuff and, and all, all of her friends who were coming over or I've got a meeting, you know, go off to the art gallery for half an hour or just sit quietly here and read this book, you know, and, and a bunch of well women would turn up and plan equal pay cases. It was...
0: So you really, you, you really have been surrounded and and grown up, you know, very organically in all of this. And and I remember a comment. Um, I think I saw you had written this around growing up in the women's movement. There was a real lack of hierarchy. I mean, what does that look like, and what does that mean?
1: Yeah, I've, I've got a lot of aunties. <laughs> I've got a lot of aunties, and they they all um they all have a right to say things to me that, uh, you know, that's how it is, and um but I also call on them when I need them, you know, they're there and there's a lot of them. There's some, and and I'm very fortunate because of who my family is, Um, you know, some of those aunties are some of the the most prominent feminists in Australia over the last few decades. And, you know, they're wonderful women. Um, They're women I still call on, um, women and non-binary folk. And uh, the thing that's really interesting, and I, I got this from my mother, uh, she's she's a really interesting person. She's She doesn't gossip. She's always interested in people, but she doesn't gossip about people. Mm. She looks at situations. And um, very early on, we learned that you don't judge people. So how people look doesn't matter. How people, you know, what rank they are doesn't matter. Um, you know, coming from that communist background of my grandparents, um, you know, hierarchies, so, um, you know, we we were never overawed by meeting people who were supposedly important. Mm. And it was actually a really good grounding because it meant that when I did move into frontline activism, and not only did I know some of these people already, but um, I also was not overawed by the, the places that I was in or the people yeah. that I was meeting. Um, And it stood me in really good stead. I I can sit down and have a conversation with somebody or talk to them comfortably as we are doing now without it being something that I'm overawed by. Mm. And I really value that. It took me a long time to realise that that was something that I'd learned through that experience rather than something that everybody had. I just assumed everyone had it. And it was only um, in the last decade of my life that I've come to understand that it's actually quite unusual so can
0: I ask you to go to the the heart of some of this um you know what what's your perspective on leaders are they born or made
1: Mm, I love this question bit of both (laughs) bit of both um I think there are I I was actually thinking about this last night Melissa this one you know really goes around in my brain periodically and Last night I, I reached a point where I'm inclining more towards made than born. I think we learn stuff. We learn behaviour. We've probably all got a certain element, a certain core of leadership ability in all of us that most of us have um, conditioned out of us pretty early in the piece. You know, girls are taught to be um, more focused on our appearance and on not not being too, you know, overt. Um, so we get we get sort of pushed down and, and quietened, and boys are taught to be um, shovy and a bit um, a bit controlling, you know. And uh, you know that's the patriarchy we're living in. And through that, our leadership is actually damaged our nat- nat- um, natural leadership sort of qualities. So that's stepping up and taking responsibility stuff. You know, the kids do that on the playground when they stand up for one of their friends who's who's having a bad time um, or speaking up for someone or, or getting up in class and saying something or you know even in preschool kids are doing this but I think the learned stuff is what we were just talking about you know it's learning it's learning that we're all equal people mm-hmm. um, most people unlearn that and in some ways I was the beneficiary of relearning that or hyper-learning it or something like that. Um, And it's some of those things where, you know, leadership is not the position you are in. And I I think, you know, a lot of people in our society have fallen into the trap of thinking it's achieving the position of chair or achieving a CEO position or, you know, something like that. You know, their sense of worth is very tied into their their position, their employment, even how much money they're earning. Um, None of these things make you a leader. And in some cases, they actually act against it. They they turn you into somebody who is um, more interested in your own um, position, you know, the what's in it for me mob. Um, yes. And, you know, feathering their own nest, as we see, unfortunately, in politics today is quite prevalent than they are in actual leading. Um, and we often have a, a conversation in the disability community, which, you know, has also been one in the women's movement over the years around what is leadership anyway? and. I, I think it is something around that taking responsibility, that stepping up when, when it's needed. Metaphorically speaking, of course, some yeah. of us don't do stepping. Um, and that, that whole space of being aware of the bigger picture and how you fit into it and therefore how you can influence it and improve it.
0: Mm.
1: And whose improvement are you making a judgement about anyway? Like, who says what's right and what should be happening? So, leadership is also about listening and understanding the people around you. All of this is learned skill mm.
0: um,
1: And it's something that people a lot of people don't seem to take too much time to be doing, but uh, you know a lot of leadership development focuses in those sorts of spaces. Mm.
0: So Christina, um, what other pivotal moment would you or what pivotal moment uh, would you call out along your career? um where you know if I can be so bold as to suggest that your own leadership went from good to great can
1: you think of at <laughs> that moment too I thought great who decides my leadership's great I'm not going to tell you my leadership <laughs> I was it
0: today so um you know what what is there in your sort of you know career that what are those moments that stand out
1: these are what in in uh i do vertical leadership which is actually a whole bunch of things google it everybody um and uh there's a whole bunch of stuff around the the experiences you go through in your life that actually shape you that change you and that that uh, push you into a different space where you redefine your existence and how you fit into the world around you and how you operate and I think there's something in the disability community where we perhaps get more of those than the average person. So that's a big advantage um, that disability leaders have. And so for me, I mean, I acquired a disability. So that process of acquiring a disability, which has nothing to do with leadership, but has a lot to do with redefining how you operate and who you are, Mm -hmm. how you interact with others, how you um, recognise that you can't, that being alone in the world is not as um, much of an option, those sorts of things. So becoming more collaborative, becoming more consultative, um, becoming far more patient, uh, that stuff, um, those sorts of things. I I also had a number of other things that happened. I was not only mentored by my grandmother, which was, um, you know, I mean, people would have paid a lot of money for that. I got it for free, good on me. Um, Her very great friend and I only discovered they were great friends um, after you know many years um but a a fabulous woman called beryl henderson who after whom the first refuge in canberra is now named um used to be the canberra women's refuge is now named beryl um and uh beryl always referred to herself as as my great-grandmother because i already had two so she was she had to be something extra and she was a fantastic mentor um And right through my teenage years, Beryl was always there for me. We'd go on trips together. She'd take me down to Victoria and things like that in her little mini minor. And I learned a lot from Beryl about being considered, as in measured, as in, um, you know, thinking before you open your mouth, but also in how you appear to others. So not just, you know, bashing around. Um, Beryl was absolutely a stickler for language. You weren't allowed to swear in her presence. It was extremely challenging for Orion to be placed in that position. But anyway, managed it most of the time. Um, She also had a particular, um, she had been a a feminist since the, um, she was born in 1894. And she'd been a feminist in the early women's movement in the UK uh, with the suffragettes, in fact. And uh, she fought for women's reproductive rights. So she was an abortion activist. Um, and uh, she was really serious about young women um, giving themselves every opportunity, respecting themselves first. And so the whole swearing thing was part of that. She also wasn't much on smoking. Um, You were allowed to smoke in Beryl's Prince. I didn't smoke ever anyway, so that was all right for me. So having mentors like that who not only were doing amazing things and changing the world, illustrating that it's possible, but also... Um, upfront saying respecting yourself is important Mm. and then through that you realise that there's a whole bunch of stuff around you so these people shape you and you might not realise it at the time but certainly as I grew older certainly as I got into my 20s I realised that the person that I had become was actually a product of these astonishing women Mm. apart from Edna's six living sisters uh, my great-aunts who were also astonishing women um, and all of my aunties in the women's movement who were astonishing women plus my actual aunts. Um, so I've got a couple of those who are astonishing women. Uh, Ryan women do astonishing things, as Goff Whittlemon said. Um, so all of those women um, actually shaped me and being shaped, they didn't push me, they didn't they didn't make me do anything, but they held me to a standard. and through that I became someone who was actually aware of, what I could do and how I could achieve it without actually bulldozing over others, for example. And so a big big change process for me um, was also moving into um, uh, the community sector and understanding the people in the community sector. And every single person is a different human being. There is no generic. Every single person must be respected for who they are. Some of them are going through appalling circumstances and supporting them through those or respecting their voice while they're in that space um, has been something I've valued enormously. And I love that diversity, that richness that it brings. Um, That really has changed me. That's been a pivotal thing in my existence. So when I moved into the disability community full time, which I only did about um, 12 years ago now, about 2009 when I first did disability straight up and nothing else, and uh, ran an advocacy org. And that was, you know, you're, you're talking with people with cognitive disability all day, people who take more time to communicate, people who communicate differently. And respecting that and hearing what people have to say, you either work with it or you don't do it. Mm. Uh, And I loved that. Um, That work was astonishing. And um, I could have done it forever, but of course, like many women who are in Overachievers Anonymous, like you and me, (laughs) um, I hit the burnout wall and it uh, it almost killed me. People think burnout's just being a bit over it. Um, Actually, it's not. It's a very serious medical condition. And it wasn't until I literally collapsed and um, was unable to continue, and my doctor said to me, You're going to die, Christina, if you don't stop right now. I thought, Oh, well, that's a bit harsh. Yeah. Well, yeah, I better do something. Um, so I stopped. And uh, that also made me step back and think and redefine. And so you have these experiences in your life that you go through. Um, you know, we've all got more, there's all other things that happen, you know, Absolutely. difficult circumstances that occur to us, you know, um, those sorts of things. But, you know, these are some of the things that have happened to me that have reshaped who I am and how I operate, um, how I interact with others, that have given me a, di- a different appreciation for how I work, um, for how the people around me work. And for how I actually am part of and support my own community, um, you know, in all its multiple threads, yeah.
0: I, um, as as you know, um, I've got so many questions that, that I want to ask and it's just, um, it's where, where do I even start with them? But I feel like one that I need to start with, given your background and understanding and heritage and all these sorts of things, you know, I... I know that there's more than a quarter of a century left before we get close to closing the gender pay gap. I understand that, you know, some recent research says that for, you know, full-time executives, it's probably more like 10 years. Well, mm-hmm. whilst we can say, okay, that's that's exciting, that means that for the average to be over a quarter of a century, there's a massive, massive group. We've got a long, long way to go in that.
1: Yeah. I
0: understand... Um, you know, intersectionality, I guess. And I, I want to understand when we're here and, and my focus is, is about elevating female voices to executive positions um, within Australia, primarily, um, I just want to understand, does that help or hinder the work that you're doing? Oh,
1: I think it helps mainly. Just going to highlight the tea got that from yeah. Edna. Yeah. Not the teapot. The teapot from Edna over there. But the oolong I'm drinking I picked up from Edna. Um, the she was big on Chinese food. <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff about the women's movement that we need to be aware of. One of them is that it does have an uncomfortable but needs to be recognised streak of white privilege. Yes and that means that there's a whole bunch of women from minority groups including disabled women yes. but our first nation sisters um, our sisters from culturally diverse uh, spaces etc who are not necessarily part of the push and through that um, you know and i said this once i was at an institute of company directors forum about getting more women on boards, mm-hmm. at least a decade ago, probably closer to 15 years now. And uh, and I asked the question, I said, you know, what's the point of all this if we just replace the privileged white men with privileged white women? Mm-hmm. Because that isn't actually what we're working on here. It's not what we any of us really want. Um, you know, just having, having an XY split in the room is not yep. going to solve it. Um, We actually want this diversity because diversity brings us a hell of a lot of benefit. Um, And it's not the, oh, it's the right thing to do stuff. You know, I've written articles about this, you know, you don't do it because it's the right thing to do. Um, That doesn't wash, um, nobody cares about it. Governments don't give a toss about that sort of argument. What we do know, because there's all sorts of people now um, over, oh, I suppose 50, nearly 60 years of of active feminist movement that we've got in the current uh, wave, what we've got now is some really good research that shows us that the bottom line benefits enormously from having diversity in the room. Mm. What we don't have is enough research telling us what real diversity, intersectional diversity in the room contributes. But we do know, for example, there's some very rare research um, One of my favourite Harvard business articles that I share all over the place, um, which actually points to the fact that disabled people, for example, are 10% more innovative in the workplace than other workers. Now, when I say that to disabled people, I go, yeah, we know that. Yeah. Everybody else goes, really? And this is a group
0: of people that are problem solving daily. That's it. That's it other people take for granted right You
1: know, we're living in a world that doesn't suit us um you know this this world that's built for, for non-disabled people so everything is held together with cable ties and wire as i like to say uh, my yeah. partner's very good with cable ties and wire um uh, for the chair yeah. um, so the the stuff that that we're not doing is grasping that um at the moment uh, i've got a friend up north um who's uh, a bungee lung uh mob um and he's gone up to support his people to be part of the you know his community obligation as part of the flood recovery effort yes. um it you know must be so painful seeing what's going on up there firsthand and and you know the way that our first nations peoples approach community and how people are consulted how we discuss things there's some really nice parallels with the uh with the women's movement of the 70s with that when the women were all sitting around having, you know, discussion groups and things, Um, you know, yarning circles. Now they're very, they're different. They're not the same thing. I'm just going to make that very clear, Um, but there's some really marvelous stuff. We could be learning from first nations people that we don't, Mm -hmm. and it could actually change how we look, for example, at corporate social responsibility Mm -hmm. and we're not doing this. So we need to be getting into this space. What we also don't do well is work intersectionally. So we we split up into these silos. So there's the women's silo, which is now Mm. generically called gender, even though actually gender is quite a diverse space, and that's another silo. And then we've got the disability silo, the First Nation silo, the culturally diverse silo, all of that, and then you can split them into the gender spaces inside those silos. Now, what we recognise in the disability community, which I value enormously, it's just a marvellous thing, is it's a highly intersectional community. Mm. We've got the lot. Mm. So we don't just have 6 million and 85 different types of disability mm. or some sort of number, pluck it out of the air. You know, we're the largest minority on the planet. There's one and a half billion of us. Is it one in, one in five people experience? Well, with? it's one in six globally, but that's okay. only because a lot of countries don't have good data collection. Wow. All um, right, right. Now, in the US, they actually talk about 25% of the population, mm-hmm. so one in four. Here in Australia, it's one in five. Yes. So it can depend. In Australia, we actually split off mental health to another space. Uh-huh. So psychosocial mob are actually disabled folks. So if you bring them in, we're actually talking probably about one in four. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of stuff there. But within that, for example, in the autistic community, there's a much higher level of transgender people than there are in the broader community. Mm-hmm. So we've got this massive sort of intersectional thing going there. You don't just have disabled people, you've got disabled non-binary folk who might also have other stuff going on. Yes. Um, you've got um, half of all Aboriginal people are disabled. So you've immediately got this massive intersectional thing happening. And so we're not doing that well. We're not recognising how we can work intersectionally and bring that incredible diversity of experience, views, perspectives, ways of operating into the room.
0: What do you wish either everyone knew or what question do you wish people
1: asked? The question everybody needs to ask is, who isn't here? Um, I really get annoyed when people just forget about disability because we're not in the room. Mm it's particularly a problem with disabled women because disabled women are far less likely to be in the room than disabled men, going a bit binary there again. Uh, I'll just clarify that every time I use the word women these days, I actually mean non anyone who women identifying folk uh, and trans women. So please accept that my women includes you. Um, and so we're half as likely to be employed, we're half as likely to get support, we're half as likely to get the NDIS. Mm. So disabled women are actually out of the room. Uh, we've also got all of that sexism stuff going on, which means that women aren't in those rooms anyway. So I, um, I just saw uh, one of our white blokes, we have them in the disability community too, one of our white blokes getting appointed to a really prestigious position. And I thought, oh yeah, hello. I actually know six women who are better than him. No, yeah. no criticism of him, but six women off the top of my head, just this morning in 15 minutes, I thought, all of these women who would have been much better in that position than he is, but he's a white bloke, he, he gets it. Um, mm. So we know that, that happens with women. Um, so who isn't in the room and and what are you doing about it? You know, it's it's somehow up to us mm. to bash on the door and, and or to politely tap actually, cause we're girls, we politely mm. tap on the door, I say, excuse me, would you let me in? Like, Leading oh. with a, I'm
0: sorry to bother you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we actually have a sorry jar at the Disability Leadership Institute. If you say sorry, you've got to put five cents in the jar. Now it's a virtual jar, so it doesn't cost anyone anything. You know, a lot of people are on pensions. But it's, you know, let's stop apologising for existing. Mm. Let's stop actually tapping gently on the door and politely asking, and just bloody well get in there and do it. But it's actually also important for the people in those rooms to recognise that their decision-making is actually not any good unless we're in there with them. Mm-hmm. They need to notice that we're not there and they need to ask what they are doing about it to change it. How are they making sure that disabled people, disabled women are actually in those rooms so that, that you know, we are contributing to our community just as everybody else does?
0: Along the way, you know, one of the things I hear regularly from, from women I interview you know and women I talk to um is self-doubt imposter syndrome and things like that um and I know that I know that actually that is common to more than just women I think everyone at certain points feels that have you felt that along the way it's
1: a bit awkward isn't it I don't really do self-doubt it's um I, and I, I actually give my mentors. Um, so I, I the, the other mentor I haven't mentioned is the, the wonderful Joan Kerner. Yes. Uh, who I met independently, and then when she discovered who I was, she decided. No, she said. So when I, um, when I ran for parliament um, back in the early part of the century, she said, No, I'll be mentoring you, Christina. <laughs> so I thought, Oh, thanks, Joan. Sure thing. Um, these women all taught me many of the lessons. So Edna Beryl and Joan um, that. I've shared with you today about yeah. about being in the room, about not tapping gently on the door, about expecting to be there, yeah. about not waiting to be asked, about telling people, um, about understanding your own power and using the power of your your own voice, and I value that enormously.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The, the the massive advantage I've had in life is that they also taught me, which I didn't realise that. Um, that I can do that. And so I um I used to do theatre when I was young before my body gave up and um I'm one of those people who never gets nervous before I speak. I don't you know it's not something it I've ever dealt with. And only in the last couple of years did I become aware that actually that's incredibly unusual. Most mm. people actually get nervous. And I thought, oh, what's that about? And I now think it's the you know the incredible support I had from quite astonishing women who were in the front line of the public domain, seeing how they operated, having their backing, having them know that I was actually good enough. Um, You know, it doesn't mean that I haven't been through struggles and I haven't had people tell me I'm not good enough uh, because, you know, disabled women were assumed to be hopeless. But it's something that I really value is not being nervous and not having a sense of, wrong. And it has actually also assisted me to therefore be more decisive. Mm. And so I can make decisions just like that. And I know that they're the right decision. Now that can also be a dangerous thing. It it isn't just go racing off and do something. I'm very good at knowing what I want on a menu quickly. So that's useful uh, for saving time when you're having a networking lunch. But it's it's also things like when something feels right in your gut, Mm. just go with it. It's it's feeling right in your gut for a reason. You know, do a bit of background, do some diligence, don't just just you know fall by the wayside and think, oh no, I'll race off and do this. Believe in yourself that that your sense of right is there and know that you can do it.
0: I just wonder, um, you know, I could not agree more that our gut serves us incredibly well. A lot of people have lost touch with their gut. You know, they're so used to being in here um and you know reconciling talking themselves out of that gut decision and things like that you know how do you help people stay with that gut or
1: well there's some leadership coaching you know you know people are welcome to come to come on down (laughs) and it it is a thing um it's part of the patriarchy is the rational brain we're supposed to do the bloke thing and and just think with our heads now it's it affects all of us it's not just a um you know a gender thing here um you know I, i coach people of all genders and uh Putting people back in touch—not just their their gut, but also their heart. Mm. Um, these are powerful things that actually control us through incredible electromagnetism and um, chemicals in our bodies. They have incredible um, power over how we respond in situations, and yet we've trained ourselves in the the capitalist society, we're in the you know the business is everything, money is everything society that we're in, to actually bury them, to ignore them, and in fact. You know, all of that stuff about flight fright, where do you think that's coming from, guys? It's coming from me gut. Um, all that stuff about compassion and empathy and understanding people, connecting, which is a major thing for leaders to be doing, listening to people, that's coming from your heart. That's actually part of your electromagnetic field. You know, that thing when someone amazing comes into the room and you can feel it, that's their heart, the field around us. Mm-hmm. So we're shutting down incredible amounts of what we need to be good leaders. We're ignoring it. We're burying it. We're even implying that there's something wrong with it or it's a bit weird. Um, Well, I'd rather be someone who's actually able to connect with the people around me to Mm. understand, to hear. It doesn't mean I have the same experience because we're all different. But can I at least listen and connect? Can I feel that their emotion is overriding at the moment? Mm. And through that, we can actually have an open conversation rather than just exchange a few rational thoughts.
0: So if I if I break down, you know, our conversation and all the things I'm hearing, one of the things that I imagine you are exceptionally good at is stimulating change.
1: Oh, well, I've had some training.
0: Right. But,
1: <laughs> yeah. But...
0: You know, all those things you spoke about before around, I think, Beryl, um, you know, and her advice around, um, I guess, how you showed up yeah. in situations. Um, you know, what has anyone said, you know, what are your two or three secrets to change?
1: Uh, okay. There's a, a big fat one I learned from Edna, which is don't spread yourself too thin. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't do everything. Do the thing that you can do and do it well, and you will persist at it and you'll get somewhere. Um, the wonderful thing I learned from Beryl is, yeah, how you show up. Uh, you know the number of times I've got myself into the room because I thought I was a nice girl, you know and I'm articulate I've you know I've had a had a decent year 12 Canberra education so I can talk nicely and all of that. I can, I can, I can do the nice girl thing um, before I say something quite blunt and ask them a question they don't want to answer. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, and Beryl was famous for asking appallingly blunt questions whilst being a lovely little old lady. <laughs> she was excellent. Um, usually a right to lifers and those sorts of people. Um, and of course, what I learned from Joan, be in the room, own the space you are in, you know, believe in yourself, which comes from Beryl, but, you know, Joan, um, you know, really taught me that in spades. I mean, that's how she got to be Premier.
0: Incredible advice. We could just end our conversation absolutely right now and people take those three things away, let alone all the other goodness in the conversation. I would just love to ask the final question I ask everybody in our conversations, which is, does brave, what does brave feminine leadership mean? to you and do you think it needs to change um
1: it's interesting too because the feminine isn't a word i usually use in in, um you know to describe myself it's not something i think about even though i'm a nice girl and i've got a lovely wardrobe and i do the earrings um the the i guess i guess i think more in terms of women of courage yes um you know women who own the space that they're in, as I was just talking about, you know, Joan's lesson. And I think that's where we're, we're taking it. You know, we don't have to be the nice girls. Yeah. Um, the song we sang at Edna's funeral, Don't Be Too Polite Girls, which is <laughs> a terrific song. I Google it if you haven't heard it, folks. And uh, they played it at the end of the Women of Steel documentary, which I saw the other night. And, and you know, it's a, it's a song that my family all sings. We all know the words of it. You know don't be too polite girls it doesn't get us anywhere mm. we need to think about how we will change the world we don't have to give ground to do it and I think you know the push is on it's it's actually the backlash it's it's insidious it's really subtle for us to be lovely and to still do all of the nice things mm. um the politicians do it all the time you know if somebody's being shouty i'm I, I don't want to speak to them well actually that's how they get us out of the room yes
0: um
1: so we need to still we need to maintain our integrity be ourselves be who we are and use that we're all different use it um you know no two women are the same we are all astonishing but we all have something and never, you're never working alone. I think that's the other thing. We don't, you're not out there in the front on your own. You've got this phalanx of people behind you. I mean, how many women have I mentioned this morning?
0: Yes. You know,
1: huge array and, and they're around me all the time. Um, it's, it's something else entirely, you know, my, the disability sisterhood is fantastic. You know, we really back each other. So there's, you're never alone.
0: Christina, thank you so much for joining this conversation. You know, I think of all of those uh, incredible leaders you're working with, getting a chance to soak up, um, you know, all of, all of your wisdom and advice that's been, you know, benefited so strongly by, you know, growing up surrounded by it. So thank you. Um, thank you for sharing. It's been extraordinary to have your voice as part of the Brave Feminine Leadership Conversation.
1: I'm still learning from all of them as well, Melissa. It's every single day. And thanks so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.